Think about your life. Every day you wake up and fight to live in freedom and against fear. But Christ has already won the battle for our freedom. We didn't earn it. The battle was won when Jesus died on the cross. We don't deserve it. He gives us grace because of his great love for us. And our freedom was secured when Christ rose from the dead. The grace of God gives us freedom. Freedom from sin, freedom to live the life he calls us to. We aren't saved by trying harder. We aren't saved by trying to be good. Only Jesus can save us and set us free. So enjoy God's gift of grace in your life. Be at peace and live in freedom. Ladies and gentlemen, we have a signed contract for the Richmond Rosenberg campus. which is modern-day proof that miracles still happen. It takes uh, between six to eight months to build out the interior of that building. And so by the time we would get it built out, it would already be summer. And we have decided we don't want to launch a campus during the summer when so many people are gone. So the launch date for the Richmond Rosenberg campus will be August, Sunday, August 23. We picked August 23 because school will be back and people will be back engaged and that will be the soft launch of the Richmond Rosenberg campus and then the grand opening will be on September the 13th, three weeks later. So why is there a gap between the soft launch and what is called, called the hard launch, uh, grand opening of the campus? It's to get the bugs out. Not real bugs, but the bugs out of the sound system, and which pretty much you never can do that, but the bugs out of the whole system of everything it takes usually about three weeks to get that done. And so the grand opening is going to be on September the 13th. But what we're going to be doing is from the spring all the way to August, we're going to be having special events that take place so that you can invite friends to come and they can learn more about Sugar Creek and it can sort of be a prelude to the beginning of the campus. What we'd love for you to do is come to the lunch that is for those who have already decided we are all in on Richmond Rosenberg campus or we still have an interest on the Richmond Rosenberg campus and we'd like more information. We would love those two groups to come to a special lunch that is going to happen one month from now on November the 17th so that you can come and get all the information and all the special dates and all that stuff, all your questions answered as we now begin to ramp up. It's just 10 months away, so while we, be, we begin to ramp up, it will give you the opportunity to get more information. Now, coupled with the signed contract, is the Houston Astros going to the World Series again? Yeah. 
When you add to the World Series and the signed contract of Richmond Rosenberg the fact that the Texans are actually playing good football, when you add all these three things together, it's obvious that Jesus is coming back any day. These are the signs of the coming of Jesus. I want to share with you a true story about two brothers in Budapest, Hungary, who were living as the most impoverished people you can imagine, eating food out of garbage cans and living in a cave to becoming two of the wealthiest, among the wealthiest, of all the people in Europe. And between being totally impoverished and having all this wealth was 24 hours. Only 24 hours. These are the two men. It's Zolt and Giza Pilati. And these are the two men that suddenly became amazingly wealthy. So what is their story? Well, when they were born, their father abandoned the family. And when they became grade school kids' ages, their mother actually abandoned them. In fact, their mother drove them to Budapest in a car and let them out and said, I hope everything turns out okay, and never saw these two boys ever again. And they never saw her, obviously. These two guys, knowing that there was no place to go, there was no one to help them, these two guys began to eat food out of trash containers. They would go and they would dig into a trash container and they would grab all the food that they, what food that people had just thrown away into the garbage. And they'd go from one garbage can to another until they got full. And they were looking for things that they could get out of the garbage can that maybe someone would be willing to pay money for. Or even, they would even go to the city dump trying to find something of value that they could sell for pennies or for dollars. These two boys lived on the streets all the way to manhood just like I have just described for you. And when they became young men, they decided we don't even know how to get a job. We don't know how to apply for a job. We don't know what kind of a job that we ought to have. We, we don't know how to do anything. And the truth is, we stink all the time. And we have tattered clothes, and there is no way anyone would ever hire us, so let's just keep doing what we've been doing all through our childhood, and let's just keep eating garbage, that food that were thrown into the garbage can, and let's just keep trying to collect things in, in the city dump. And this, these two guys were living exactly that way, all the way to age 40. And since there were, they had to have a roof over their heads, the only place they could think of of living was in a cave outside of Budapest. Their mother passed away, and they didn't know it. And then their maternal grandmother 
passed away. The maternal grandmother means the mother of the mother, right? And this maternal grandmother, though, as it turns out, was one of the wealthiest women in all of Europe. These boys didn't know that, didn't know anything about their, their past or her past or who she was. And so when this woman died, she had left in her will that some of her money, a lot of her money went to other causes, but that some of her money would go to her three grandchildren. Two boys, these two guys, and a daughter that these two guys knew nothing about. Well, in order for the lawyers to be able to find these three grandchildren, they hired private investigators, and they, the last they knew is that the mother had dropped them off in Budapest. And so they went to Budapest, and through a process I am not totally aware of, they discovered these two men living in a cave outside of Budapest. They knew their names. They, the, the investigator knew their names and knew a little bit about them, and they, he found these two guys. And so overnight, these two guys and their sister inherited $2 billion each. $2 billion each. And overnight, they went from living in a cave, eating garbage, to being billionaires. And I hope it works out for them. It doesn't always work out very good, but I hope it works out for them. Now, the truth is, you don't know whether your grandmother is going to give you billions of dollars or not. You don't know for sure, and if you have some questions about it, I would recommend that you ask her. And if she does give you billions, I want to encourage you to tithe when you get all this money. As Christ followers, we have become a child of the Most High God, and you and I are going to inherit far more than $2 billion. We are going to inherit all of heaven. All of heaven is reserved for us. And I want to talk to you about that very thing today. In a, a message entitled, You Are an Adopted Child of God. We've been going through the book of Galatians together, little by little, going through this book in a series entitled, How to Live in Freedom. I hope that you've learned some things. I certainly have as I've been preparing these messages. And this morning, we have arrived at Galatians chapter 4, verses 1 to 7. Repetition is one of the greatest ways in which we learn. When we were in, just in preschool, or even, it, well, in preschool, we learned our ABCs through repetition. We learned the song, A, B, C, D, E, F, G. We learned the song, ABC song, and we sang it over and over and over and over and over and over again. And when we did that through repetition, we learned the letters. However much you know about mathematics, you know about mathematics because of repetition. 
This is why it is actually a good thing to have math homework every night, even though it's a bother, but it is how we actually learn math. It's through repetition. Well, Paul has been using repetition all through this book. He has been going over and over and over and over again one key idea, and that is that we are saved by the grace of God through faith in Jesus Christ and absolutely nothing else. We are saved by faith in Jesus Christ. Paul, in the passage that we begin with, in Galatians chapter 4, verses 1 to 3, is repeating something that we took a look at last week. He's repeating it because when Paul got through saying it, he then had three illustrations, and this is the third of the three illustrations, the first three verses in Galatians chapter 4. So, Paul is teaching us that God intended the Old Testament Jewish law to be temporary. This is what Galatians 4, 1 to 3 is talking about. So listen to what it says. What I am saying is that as long as the heir is a child, he is no different from a slave, although he owns the whole estate. He is subject to guardians and trustees until the time set by his father. Now, circle the word guardian. That's one of the two key words. And circle the word until. That is the second key word that ties it back to what we talked about last week. Verse 3, so also when we were children, we were in slavery under the basic principles of the world. Paul, a Jewish man, is actually giving another example to make the point he made last week. Galatians chapter 3, verse 19. Why then? was the Old Testament law given. It was given alongside the promise to Abraham to show people their sins. He is showing us what is right and what is wrong by using the Old Testament Mosaic law. Let me put it another way, verse 24. The law was our guardian. There's the first key word, until. That's the second key word, Christ came. It protected us until we could be made right with God through faith. And now that the way of faith has come, we no longer need the law as our guardian. Paul is simply saying this truth. The Old Testament laws were intended to be a temporary guardian until Jesus fulfilled and completed the purpose of the law, which was given so that we are now no longer under those laws. Paul makes it so clear. So maybe you're asking a question. Maybe you're asking this question, well then, what about the Ten Commandments? Because they are a part of the Mosaic Law. What about the Ten Commandments? Should we even learn the Ten Commandments? Should we obey the Ten Commandments? Because they're part of the law too. And the answer is absolutely yes. But not because of the original reason. The Ten Commandments cannot save us. We are saved by faith in Christ alone. 
The Ten Commandments cannot save us, but they can help us better understand how it is that we love God, how it is that we love each other. The Ten Commandments are wonderful laws to learn about how to better love God, how to better love each other, but they simply don't save us. And that is what Paul is saying in the first three verses. Next, he says, at the perfect moment, Jesus came to pay the ransom for our freedom. The next two verses in Galatians are two of the most wonderful, powerful verses in the entire book. Listen to what they say. But when the set time had fully come, God sent his son. Circle the word sent. God sent his son, born of a woman, born under the law, to redeem those under the law so that we might receive adoption to sonship. The first thing that he says in these two verses is this. There was a perfect time sent by God to send his son. The Jewish Bible that we Christians call the Old Testament talks a great deal about the coming of the Messiah. The name Messiah simply means promised one. And you can go all the way back to Genesis chapter 3, the story of, of, of Adam and Eve and their sin that, that Pastor Bruce referenced earlier in the service. You can go all the way back to that chapter and the very first promise of the coming of the Messiah is located in that chapter. And then the Bible, book after book after book of the Old Testament, talks about the coming of the Messiah. When you come to the book of Psalms, there are whole Psalms that are called Messianic Psalms that the only thing those Psalms are talking about is the coming of the Messiah and specifics about that Messiah. But during the time of the prophets, those last books in the Old Testament, during the time of the prophets, there was an explosion of prophecies that are so elaborate, so distinct, so minute in what they say about the coming of the Messiah, it is amazing the things that it, those prophecies give us. For instance, they tell us the little town that the Messiah will be born in, his family lineage, that he would be born of a virgin, that he would perform miracles, that he would die on a cross. Psalm 22 and Isaiah 53 talk about the crucifixion of Jesus Christ. The problem is there was no such thing as a crucifixion for 900 more years. But Psalm 22 perfectly describes a crucifixion is absolutely shocking when you read that psalm. And the psalm is considered a messianic psalm, that he would be sold for 30 pieces of silver, that he would rise again from the grave. Hundreds of prophecies that the Old Testament gives us about the coming of the Messiah. A mathematician took all the prophecies about the coming of the Messiah to develop a probability that all these prophecies could be fulfilled by one man, and when he finished, he was a great mathematician, when he finished 
what would be the probability that one person could possibly fulfill all of these prophecies? It was so huge a number that it was impossible. He even said it. He said it is impossible for one person to fulfill all these prophecies. It would take an absolute miracle. That is why God gave them all. So that you and I, when Jesus came, who fulfilled every one of the prophecies, that when Jesus came and fulfilled those prophecies, it would be so obvious that it was the Messiah, He is the Messiah, that no one could miss it if their eyes were opened. Jesus is the Messiah. And at a perfect time set by God, He sent His Son. God waited to send the Messiah until He could reach the world, the known world at least, with the gospel message. And the first time, the first time that the known world could be reached with the gospel message was in the first century A.D., but not before. What do I mean by that? Well, first of all, God waited for the Old Testament and all the prophecies to be fulfilled. That's why the Messiah didn't come before. All the prophecies had been written. But God also waited until Alexander the Great would conquer most of the known world and establish one common language in all of the known world, the language of Greek. And God waited until the Roman Empire would conquer the Grecian Empire. And of all the strange things, they kept the Greek language even though their language was Latin. They kept the Greek language so that everyone could speak the same language. And as far as God was concerned, so the gospel could be presented to all the known world easily through one language. God waited until the Romans would build elaborate highways from the north to the south to the east to the west. There had never been a highway ever created before, only paths. The Romans invented highways made of stone And they built those highways all over the Roman Empire so that there would be ease of travel. And it was through those highways that the gospel of Jesus Christ went all over the Roman Empire. God waited until the Roman Empire had created Roman peace and Roman rule. And the end result of that is that Christian missionaries could go all over the Roman Empire with a sense of safety. God waited until the Roman Empire had invented execution by crucifixion so that Psalm 22 could be fulfilled and Isaiah 53 could be fulfilled. And God waited for the Roman Empire to improve a more convenient way of writing and distribution of those writings so that the New Testament could be created. Do you realize that before the first century that papyrus was so expensive that the only ones who could ever afford it were only the very wealthy and the kings and that sort of thing? But a new technological breakthrough happened in the first century that allowed papyrus we would call paper, 
to be able to be manufactured so easily and so cheaply that now everybody could afford papyrus and ink so that those people who had so little money could begin to write down all the things Jesus had said, all the things Jesus had done, and there was an explosion of writing in the first century, and so much of it was the writing of the New Testament. Do you see how God pulled the strings, how God moved people in the right direction so that he could accomplish his goal? And that is why Jesus came in the first century. This is what he is saying in, Gal in Galatians 4.4, but when the set time had fully come. The next thing he says in the verse is that Jesus, the Son of God, is sent, not created. Galatians 4, verse 4 and 5, but when the set time had fully come, God sent his Son, born of a woman, born under the law. You and I, when fertilization took place, were created. You and I were created. But he doesn't use those terms when it comes to Jesus. He wasn't created. He was sent. And what it suggests is that Jesus already existed before the baby in Bethlehem. Listen to what the Bible says about Jesus. John chapter 1 and verse 1. In the beginning was the Word, capital W-O-R-D, and the Word was with God, and the Word was God. The same was in the beginning with God. Through Christ, all things were made, and without Him, nothing was made that has been made. Listen to how this book, written by a Jewish man, that the Apostle John describes Jesus. That Jesus had no beginning because in the beginning he was already there. And he was with God the Father and he was God the Son. And nothing was created except that Jesus created them. Everything, the universe and all that's in it, were created by Him. Verse 14, and the Word became flesh and dwelt among us. And we beheld His glory as of the glory of the one and only Son of the Father, full of grace and truth. Jesus was not created, he was sent. And that's the point he's making. Jesus was a Jewish man, born of a Jewish woman, who followed the Jewish law. Why do I love Jewish people so much? I've shared this with you several times over my 17 years as your pastor. Why do I love Jewish people so much. The first reason is because my mother and father loved Jewish people, and they taught their three kids to love Jewish people. My dad so many times told me how important the Jewish people are, 
how special they are to God and that I was to always treat them with respect. Second of all, I love Jewish people because they are the birth people of my Lord and Savior, Jesus Christ. You say, well, but didn't the Jewish people reject Jesus as the Messiah? In first century, thousands upon thousands of Jews became Christ followers. And in fact, in the beginning, the only Christians that were, were Jewish Christians. But you're right. Over the last 19 centuries, the overwhelming majority of Jewish people have rejected Jesus as the Messiah. But not all Jews, because in every century there have been Jewish people who have come to believe and understand that Jesus truly was the Messiah, and they accepted Christ as their Savior. They became called Messianic Jews. And there are many Messianic Jews in America. We have Messianic Jews who are members of our church, who are Jewish by birth, but they have accepted Christ as Savior, and by choice and by faith, they have become followers of Jesus Christ. I love Jewish people because in Romans chapter 11, Paul teaches us that in the last days, thousands upon ten thousands, maybe hundreds of thousands of Jewish people in the last days will accept Jesus Christ as a personal Lord and Savior and will come to Christ by the droves. Can I tell you something? If Christians would love Jewish people, more Jewish people would come to faith in Jesus Christ. Love Jewish people. The next thing that Paul says in this passage is this, Jesus came to redeem us. Galatians 4, 4 and 5. But when the set time had fully come, God sent His Son, born of a woman, born under the law, to redeem those under the law. What does it mean when He says redeemed, that He redeemed us? The word redeem means to liberate from an oppressive condition. 1 Peter chapter 1, verses 18 and 19 says, For you know that it was not with perishable things, such as silver and gold, that you were redeemed from the empty way of life handed down to you from your ancestors, but with the precious blood of Christ, a lamb without blemish or defect. God sent His Son to die on the cross. By His blood, you and I have been bought back. That's what the word redeem means, to, br- to buy us back to God. You and I have been bought with the blood of Jesus Christ. He has redeemed us to Himself. How much are you worth? How much are you worth? You are worth God shedding the blood of His own Son to rescue you. That is how much God thinks of you. But there is one more thing I want you to see in the passage. We are not only freed from our bondage, we are adopted as children 
of God. See what he says? But when the set time had fully come, God sent his son, born of a woman, born under the law, to redeem those under the law, that we might receive adoption to sonship. Because you are his sons and daughters, God sent the spirit of his son into our hearts, the spirit who calls out, Abba, Father. So you are no longer a slave, but you are God's child. And since you are his child, God has made you also an heir. God not only forgave us of our sins and gave us freedom. He did far more than that. God did not stop at having mercy on us. He also gave grace to us beyond what was imaginable. God did not just make us free. He made us His children. One of the most astonishing things that are taught in the New Testament is that you and I have been adopted as children of God. We who once were dead in our sins are now alive in Christ. To be adopted into the family of God points to the fact that God didn't just save us. He chose us to be a part of His very own family. When we think of adoption in this day, we usually think of adoption of being children. And mostly, the children that are adopted are adopted as babies. This is how we think of adoption. We think of a family adopting a child, maybe a baby, because that's what happens in our culture. But in first century Roman Empire, they never adopted children. Why? Because the whole idea of adoption in first century Roman Empire was to give their estate to another person because they had no sons, and they would give their estate to another person, but they would never take the chance of adopting a child because so many children would die before they became adults. And so the only adoption in first century Roman Empire was the adoption of another adult. That adult would have to be at least age 20 before that person would be adopted by a family. In the first century, when an adoption took place, that, that adult that was adopted by that new father could never be disowned, even though by Roman law it was possible for a father to disown a child. But by Roman law, they could never disown an adopted child. So what does that mean? It means that an adopted son had more security in the Roman Empire in first century than a biological son. When the New Testament talks about us being part of the family of God, it only is talking about us as an adopted child. The idea of an adopted child is always presented in the concept of first century Roman law. 
and the understanding of security. Now, here's what I want you to grasp. The Bible only talks about us as being adopted children of God. And it means then that you and I could never be disowned by God. Because it is only the understanding of first century Roman Empire that the word adoption was used. This is one, not all, but one of the reasons that we believe in the eternal security of a believer because of the concept of adoption. Once we are adopted into the family of God, God will never disown us. Adoption in first century had many components. It was a rich family that would adopt a man from a poor family. And when that rich family would adopt a man from a poor family who was a son but an adult son, that rich family would pay the poor family a ton of money. And if this adopted man, son, had debts, the rich family would pay off all of his debts. That rich family would give this new adopted adult son their name. And he now would be heir of all of their estate. He would be considered royalty. There was an official ceremony of that adoption, and the ceremony of that adoption would remind us of, quite honestly, a wedding in 21st century. Here's what I mean. What would happen in the ceremony is that the biological father would walk with his son down an aisle, and he would meet at the end of the aisle, he would meet the adopting father. Kind of like a dad walking his daughter down the aisle in a wedding. And he would give that son to, officially to, the adopting father. Just like the dad walking his daughter down the aisle gives her to the man who's going to marry her. This young man would then take the name of the adopting father, and he would give up the name of his biological father. Much like what happens when a woman marries a man and she takes his name, his last name to be hers. This adopted son can still go back and have a relationship with his biological parents. They can have dinners together, how things going. They can still have relationship, but he has taken on the name of his adopted father. And now all that the adopted father owns becomes his. There also has to be in that formal ceremony of adoption seven witnesses of that adoption. So put all these things together about first century Roman Empire adoption and think about what God has done for us. God himself adopted us into his family. He paid a high price. 
the price of his son's own blood. And in doing so, he wiped out our debt, our debt of sin against God. Then he gave us all the privileges and honor and inheritance to become a child of God. We have now been given a new name, and we are now a new creation, and we belong to a new family. Our place in God is secure. Our future is certain. Our inheritance cannot be taken away from us. He has now clothed us with His glory, His royalty, and He has given us an inheritance that will never pass away. And do I hear an amen? This is what God has done for you and I. And they use the word adoption because first century adoption is exactly what God has done for us. And what about the seven witnesses? There are several places in the Old Testament and New Testament in which the Holy Spirit is referred to as the sevenfold spirit. I've always wondered about that. What does that mean? Well, one of the aspects of what that sevenfold spirit is about is about adoption. And it is why every time you read about us being adopted in the New Testament, the Holy Spirit is always involved in the passage. For instance, Galatians chapter 4, verse 6, because you are His sons, God sent the Spirit of His Son into our hearts. The Spirit of Christ is another name for the Holy Spirit. The Spirit who calls out, Abba, Father. It is the same idea in Romans chapter 8, verse 15 and 16. The Spirit you have brought about, you, the Spirit you received brought about your adoption to sonship. And by Him we cry, Abba, Father. The Spirit Himself testifies with our spirit that we are God's children. He testifies because He's a witness. He is the witness of this adoption that has taken place. He comes to live inside of our life. He comes to live inside to encourage us, to spur us on, to give us power and strength to live the Christian life, to teach us the Word of God. The name Abba is the most intimate word in the Aramaic language to refer to your father, it means daddy. And the Holy Spirit teaches us, Abba, Father, so that we cry out, Abba, Father. What does this mean? What is he saying? He is saying that when we come to know Christ as Savior and the Holy Spirit of God comes to live inside of us, we enter into a relationship with God that is not God way out there, some distant God, but the God who comes to live inside of us in an intimate relationship with God so that we call Him Daddy. Can you imagine an intimate relationship with a holy God that is so intimate in which He becomes our Daddy? Galatians chapter 4, verse 7, so you are no longer a slave, but God's child. And since you are his child, God has made you also an heir. 
And I'm here to declare to you today that if you've received Jesus Christ as your Savior, the Holy Spirit has come to live inside of you, and you have become an heir of God so that you own everything of God, and all of heaven is yours. This is what the Bible is teaching us. Yay, God. So here's my question to you. Have you accepted Jesus as your Savior? Have you come to know Jesus Christ as your Savior? If you haven't, oh, please do. He gave everything for you to become a child of God. And he offers to you all of heaven if you will give your heart to him. He'll come to live inside of you. He'll become the strength of your life. He will have a close, intimate relationship with you. All your sins are forgiven. All of heaven becomes yours. Give your heart to Jesus Christ. In just a few moments, this service will be over, and when it is, you can go to the Next Step Center out there in the commons area, and you can, on the right of that, of that playscape is the Next Step Center, and there will be ministers there that will help you come to know Jesus as your Savior. Give your heart to Christ today. And those of you who know Jesus as your Savior and you're visiting this church and there's a sense in your heart this place just feels like home, go to the Next Step Center and make it official and join this church. But for every person in this room who knows Jesus as Savior but has grown cold in your relationship with Him, come back to Him today. You see, we can walk away from him, but he never walks away from us, and he keeps pulling us back. Come back to him. Come back to him today. Let's pray together. Father, we thank you for the truth of your word, the amazing depth of your word. And, oh, God, how you love us and what you have done for us saving us and forgiving us and cleansing us and cleaning us up and changing us from the inside out. And then, oh God, teaching us your word and building that intimate relationship with us. Oh God, we love you and we thank you for your love for us. You've reserved all of heaven for us. We have become heirs of Almighty God. God, thank you. And Father, may many right now come to know Jesus Christ as their personal Lord and Savior. I pray in Jesus' name, amen.